Amen. So we are going to be in 1 Samuel 16 this morning. Um, this is the story of David's beginning, and it's, it's a story of humble beginnings. Like many, many uh, successful leaders, he started out in a humble place. And we can think about popular leaders here even in, in our own context. Ben Franklin was born one out of, get this, 17 children, a poor family, dropped out of school, became an indentured servant. But of course, we all know the story, became one of the founding fathers of America, a successful inventor. And you may not know this, but president of the Executive Council of Pennsylvania, which was basically the governor of PA before they had governors. Um, Abraham Lincoln, similar story, right? Grew up log cabin, poor family on the frontier, frontier, no formal education, became a lawyer and became... Arguably the greatest president, the 16th president of the United States, ending slavery, preserving the Union. you got somebody like Henry Ford in the business world, grew up on a farm in Michigan. His mother died at a young age, moved to Detroit, started out working as a machinist, a steam engine mechanic. Ended up, of course, founding Ford Motor Company and revolutionized manufacturing. Even here locally in our own context, a guy like Ben Carson raised by a poor, uneducated single mother in Baltimore, ended up going to medical school and becoming one of the most successful neurosurgeons across the world. Of course, served as U.S. Secretary of Housing, right? Often successful people, both in in the church, in ministry, in in business, begin with humble beginnings. That's what we find in David's story, chapter 16. He's the forgotten youngest son from a small town in Israel. He's working long hours in a blue-collar job out in the field tending sheep. And from that, he will rise to be king of Israel. Chapter 16 is kind of a fulcrum point in the book. It's the the third section of the series as we're looking at Rise of a King. The first seven chapters really focused on Samuel, the faithful prophet. Then we saw the rise of King Saul in in beginning in verse in chapter eight, but he quickly uh, fell and failed, and will continue to do so to the end of the book. But here in chapter 16, it's kind of the middle section, the literary, historical, theological fulcrum, you could say, the shift into David's story, where we will see his rise to become king. But a lot is going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. In fact, he won't really become anointed or, or, or uh, set in as king until Second Samuel. But we're going to begin reading the story this morning of his beginning. We'll begin in in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first half up to verse 13. And then we'll uh, look at the second half um, here at the end. So read along with me the Word of God, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Elam 
and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent him and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here is the beginning. The great king David starts out like this. Verse 1, the Lord's ready to move on from Saul. He tells Samuel, all right, finish up your grieving. It's time to anoint the next king. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem to find Jesse. One of Jesse's sons will be anointed the new king and and God will direct Samuel. See, without the royal line of, of Saul's descendants, God is basically going to start over with a new family from a new clan, from a new tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now in verses 2 and 3, we see that Samuel is understandably worried. Like, wait a minute, if Saul finds out what I'm doing, I'm going to be executed for, for treason, right? Because Saul is still, is still king of the nation. And so the Lord gives Samuel a secondary purpose. He says, well, go to Bethlehem and make a sacrifice with the elders of the town, with Jesse and his sons. And Samuel goes, a great act of courage, proving himself as he's continued to be incredibly faithful and courageous, willing to obey God, willing to deliver God's word no matter how difficult. So Samuel arrives in verses 4 and 5 at the city gates. The elders are immediately terrified, right? Because Samuel's a big important person, right? What's going on? He says, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice with the elders of the town. You all come Cleanse yourself, go through the process of ritual purification, we'll gather together for a feast and make a sacrifice. So in verse 6, they all come to the designated gathering place, and Samuel immediately sees Jesse come in, and behind him, his oldest son, Elob, and he thinks, wow, this must be the new king, right? Like, like Saul, Elob must have been tall, he must have been handsome, he was the oldest, the most mature, the most kingly among them. But God says, don't look at his stature, Samuel. Don't look at his outward appearance. Elab is not the one. What do we see there in verse 7? This crucial statement. The Lord doesn't see people from a human perspective. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the state of the heart. Saul was the most kingly man in all the nation. He was tall, he was handsome, but that did not do him any good, right? And so the Lord says, no, no. Now we're going to look at the heart, not their outward appearance. So Samuel is going to look at Jesse's other sons, not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. And so in verses 8 to 10, one by one, all of Jesse's seven sons come out, and one by one, the Lord says to Samuel, this is not the one that I've chosen. Now, I want to pause for a moment. They're gathered at a feast. Jesse's family is there. The elders of the town are there. Do they know what's going on? Do they know what's happening and why Samuel is evaluating Jesse's sons? I think that there's no indication in the text 
that anyone knew that Samuel was, an, was anointing the next king. In fact, I think there's good indication that they didn't know that, right? Samuel has prophesied to King Saul, who has spun out into defiance and selfishness, look, God's rejected you, Saul. The kingdom will be taken away and given to someone better. But I think it's safe to assume that Saul himself would have been desperate to keep that prophecy a secret. He didn't want anybody else to know he had fallen out of favor with God. And Samuel was certainly not going to announce what's going on, right? His own head is on the line. He's made it very clear that he needs to keep this mission a secret. So I actually think Jesse and his sons don't know what is happening, what the anointing is for. The fact is, in ancient Israel, anointing someone with oil would have been used for a variety of purposes. Olive oil was a common element used for everything from healing wounds to refreshing your face after being out in the hot desert. And certainly something special is going on here. Samuel doesn't show up to the little town of Bethlehem without a good reason, right? But oil was not just used to anoint kings. It would have been used to anoint priests, to anoint prophets. It could have been used to set aside anyone for any sacred duty, It's possible they even thought that Samuel was anointing his successor, right? I mean, Samuel was old at the beginning of the book. Now he's like old, old, right? Maybe Samuel was setting aside someone to be be the next prophet of Israel. But I'm pretty sure they don't have a clue that this is setting aside the next king. So the six sons all are called by God, or called to, to come before them, and God says, none of them are the next king. I can imagine Samuel at this point getting a little nervous. Like, I've come here, I've set all this up. And so he finally asks Jesse in verse 11, are you sure that there's nobody else? Are you sure you haven't left out one of your sons? And and Jesse, I would imagine somewhat reluctantly, is like, well, there is still the youngest, but he's kind of a runt. He's out in the wilderness. We just have him taking care of the sheep. Apparently Jesse was just going to leave him out of the whole thing. And so Samuel's like, well, you better go get him because I'm not sitting down to eat until he's here. And so they run and they get him out of the field. Now, it doesn't really make sense to me why David would have been left out, right? Traditionally, the oldest son of a family would have had a place of honor, but it doesn't mean that the youngest son would have been treated that way. We have other instances in Scripture where the youngest was actually the favorite. We have to postulate, was David some kind of black sheep? Was he still just such a young teenager that at this point it never even occurred to Jesse that maybe little old David would be useful to the prophet Samuel? Why would he come to the feast? One thing we know is that if his role in the family was to be the caretaker of the sheep, that David would have spent much time, many weeks, away from home, finding new pasture for the sheep. Maybe his father was just so used to David not being around that he just sort of even forgot to go get him and invite him to the feast. But in verse 12, when David finally does show up, immediately something happens in Samuel's spirit. He sees him, first of all, from the outside. He's, he's ruddy. He's handsome. We, we're noted in the text that he's got beautiful eyes. Take it for what it is, right? That's not why God chose him, Okay. Ruddy would have meant that he had kind of a reddish complexion. As a shepherd working outside, he would have had some healthy sun on his face, right? The Lord reveals to Samuel, this is the one. This is the one you are to anoint. And so in verse 13, he takes his container of oil in in an animal's horn. He pours it on David's head right there in the midst of his brothers and all the elders. And at that moment, the Spirit of God powerfully comes on David. From that day forward, we're told, David was covered by the Spirit of God. In fact, oil itself would have been a symbol of the Holy Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, the Spirit's presence was often temporary. It would often fall on someone for a specific task. But here, the Spirit of God has a sense of permanence on David. Samuel, we're told, after the festival, after the sacrifice, he leaves. And I suspect David and his brothers stood around looking at each other like, what in the world just happened? What, what am I set aside to do? What is David called to do? David's beginning, and it begins with God looking at the heart. And one thing is very clear about our introduction to, to David. He is a shepherd, right? The text goes out of its way to make that prominent. When we were first introduced to Saul, remember he was out wandering around looking for lost donkeys. Now we find David faithfully tending sheep as a shepherd. Being a shepherd, as I've said, was not a prominent, it was not a glamorous job. It was hard work, it was dirty work with long hours. It involved days away from home, lots of time alone in the wilderness, sleeping out in the open with predators all around after the sheep. It was a dangerous job. And I have to wonder, when God looked past David's outward appearance into his heart, I wonder if he saw the heart of a shepherd. Not just a guy who had a job for his family, but the heart of a shepherd. Because David would one day rule as king of Israel with the heart of a shepherd. And we learn that God himself has the heart, is a shepherd for his people. David, who had spent his life leading sheep, would, would learn to lead men, lead an army, lead a nation. David, who had, who had fed the family's sheep, would now learn to feed God's people. Who had cared for and protected sheep would grow into a man that would care and protect for God's people in reflection of God Himself. And we know that God does not look at David on the outside. He wouldn't have seen him the way you and I would have seen him. If David were standing among us, we would see a young teenager who was dirty, who was sunburned, and who was forgotten. But Verse 7 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're reminded of chapter 13, when after Saul had failed, God said, I will seek another king, a man after my own heart. In, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Paul preaches on this very thing. In Acts chapter 13, he summarizes this little account this way. Then They, Israel, asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. What what a concept. If we could learn, like Samuel had to learn, to look at people through God's eyes, To look past the outward appearance. To look past people's superficial traits and worldly accomplishments. Instead, to look at their hearts. How often do we judge people on the outside, right? We've been told since we were in kindergarten, don't judge a book by its cover. But I know if the cover of a book is outdated or lame looking, I'm probably not as likely to read it, right? We do. We notice outward appearance, Right? Think 2009, Britain's Got Talent, Susan Boyle walks out there in that ridiculous 1970s long yellow dress, her frizzy hair, she's kind of wobbling, she doesn't talk well. The judges, if you go back and watch the video, they're literally chucking, chuckling at her. And then she opens her mouth to sing, and the whole world was literally blown away with the pipes that that woman has, Right? But we judge by outward appearance. We look at someone and judge whether or not they're fashionable or outdated. 
whether they are young or old. Whether that's good or bad is for you to decide, right? Mostly we want like medium, not too young, not too old. We, we notice whether someone is, is handsome or plain looking, beautiful or plain looking. We, we pick up on, right? We, we notice race, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. We look at someone and tell, well, they're really short or they're really tall or they, the way they're dressed and what the car they drive, they're probably really wealthy or they're probably really poor, right? Sometimes we write somebody off based upon our, our external observances, Sometimes we go the other way and we elevate some. We immediately say, well, this person must be important, right? It's statistically a fact that good-looking men and women get more opportunities in the world, in the workplace. It's just true. Our Lord Jesus said, John 7, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. To judge with right judgment means we have to look at the most important place of all. Not their eyes, not their pocketbook, their heart. That's how God sees you and I. That's how we need to look at others. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a man or woman after God's own heart? You could translate that, a a, a man according to God's heart. Literally, it means a person with a heart like the heart of God. That's what it means. That your heart is in sync, is aligned with God's heart. What What is the heart of God? If we are to be people with a heart like God, if we are to look at others based upon their heart, what does it mean to have the heart of God? I think we can see that the, the, the crux of God's heart in the ministry, in the person, in the work of Christ. If you look at the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the heart of God. And so I want to give you just three quick things. If you want to have a heart for God, if you want to be able to assess a friend, a future spouse, a ministry leader, If you want to assess somebody, do they have a heart for God? Look for this. First of all, is it a person that seeks God's glory? Right? The the cross and the resurrection is all about God glorifying himself. Yes, God wanted to rescue his people. But if you read scripture, God makes it very clear that his primary motivation is his, his glory. That he would be exalted. That he would be lifted up. God sent Christ to restore His glory, to fulfill justice, to fulfill mercy. Jesus Himself again and again said that He was seeking His Father's glory. He was living for His Father's glory. Are you a man? Are you a woman that's not after your own recognition, but after the glory of God? Secondly, we see in the cross how central the love of God is. To be a man or woman with a heart like God is to walk in love for others. The cross of Christ meant that that the Lord loved the world enough to sacrifice His one and only Son. God, a God who is love, demonstrated His love on the cross. The Father's love for us. Jesus' love for us. He walked in His, His human life. He walked in love for others. And we are called to have a heart like God that means a heart of love. A heart that seeks the glory of God, that is postured to love and to serve others. But thirdly, I think at the cross of Christ, we see the value of holiness and the call for you and I to grow in purity. See, the cross means that God cares about holiness. He goes out for His own glory. He goes out in love and He goes out to protect and preserve His holiness. God will not ever compromise His righteousness. He will not ever give in to sin. And to have the heart of God means for us to walk in purity, to preserve our own holiness, to do the will of God. So for uh, for us to grow, 
with the heart of God means we, we look for God's glory. We walk in love for others. We gr- grow in our own personal purity. We protect the righteousness of God. And I pray that that's how we can look at others and evaluate others. As Jesus said, not to judge by appearances, but with right judgment. Who look not at outward appearances, who don't write people off, or who don't prematurely assume too good of others, but look into their hearts. But the most important thing may not be how we see others, it might be how we see ourselves, because far too often we evaluate ourselves based upon external conditions and outward appearances and superficial accomplishments. But God says, no, no, I look at your heart, you look at your heart. And seek, first and foremost, to grow the heart of God in yourself. Trust Christ. Trust in His death and in His resurrection. That through His death, your broken heart, your wayward heart, has been taken away and forgiven. And through His resurrection, you've been given a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart like Christ. And so say, God, grow the heart of Jesus in me. Because anything of note, anything good, anything of accomplishment in this life will begin with your heart. will begin with a heart like God's. This is why Peter writes to the women in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's an exhortation for for women. Women hear this, but men, I think there's something here for us as well. The Word of God says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing of your clothes, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. A man or woman with an imperishable beauty in his or her heart, a gentle, quiet spirit is very precious to God. May God grow that in us. May we learn to see past the external into the hearts of people. That is David's beginning, his humble beginning, because someone, the prophet Samuel, was listening to God and saw past David's external features whom everyone else had forgotten and said, nope, this is to be the anointed king of Israel. And as we return back to the text in verse 14, the scene now shifts to Saul. We already know that Saul has fallen out of favor with God, that he's been rejected as king because of his defiance, his arrogance, his presumption, his, his continual choice of himself over God. But wait. Things are about to get worse. <laughs> look, look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. 
So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So the second part of, of David's beginning is David entering service, not just for Saul, but service for God. And when I, I want to look at this story, but then I want to pick our heads up and look a little more broadly. Okay, so follow along, because I think the, the meaning of this text, we have to see the whole, the whole life and the whole picture of David. We're told in verse 14 that the Spirit departed from Saul. Now, now listen, in the New Covenant, when a man or a woman confesses Christ as Savior... The Spirit of God enters us and and stays with us. Every believer at the moment of faith, you're born again and the Spirit of God fills you. But in the Old Covenant, before the death and resurrection of Christ, the Spirit of God would come on a person to fulfill a specific mission or a specific calling. Saul, we read in chapter 10, had received the Spirit of God when he was anointed king, but now Saul has turned his back on God and God is pouring out his Spirit on a new king. And so as Saul is now standing in defiance against God, without the Holy Spirit, Saul has basically opened himself up to another harmful spirit to come in and torment him. And we actually read that the Spirit was sent by God, which is a little troubling for us, right? Yes, Saul has turned his back. Yes, the Holy Spirit has left Saul. Yes, Saul is opening himself up to a sinful, tormenting spirit. But why does it say that, 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 that God sent the Spirit? It's really... A factor of this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over everything in His created world. All people. All angels. All demons. God is sovereign over physical sickness. God is sovereign even over mental illness and spiritual attack. As we go on to read, Saul seems to be suffering from a breakdown. A mental, emotional, spiritual breakdown. And Saul, the remainder of his life, will be driven by fear. By paranoia by indecision, by suspicion, by short-sightedness and selfishness. Why would God allow? Why would God even have a, a part in sending this spirit? First of all, it's a natural consequence of Saul's actions. Saul has defiantly turned his back on God, refusing to be obedient, and when he does, he finds torment. Because life apart from God is, is never a fun place to be. In many ways, God is, is giving Saul The result of his own actions, he's punishing Saul for his arrogant defiance. But secondly, what's very interesting is that God has sent this tormenting spirit on Saul, not just because of his own actions, but God is going to use this to bring David into the inner circle of the king and to orchestrate the very transition of power that will need to happen to put David in the place of king. This is all part of God's providence. So there's this this tormenting spirit that Saul is now dealing with in verses 15 and 16, his servants notice it. There's been a noticeable change, a breakdown that's happened. And they're like, dude, you need someone to help you and comfort you. Experience must have told them, hey, music will soothe our king, will help calm him down and return him to a stable place. Now the king at this point would have had dozens of servants would have dressed him and cooked for him and bodyguards and assistants and administrators and religious advisors and political advisors and on and on and on. So adding a musician into Saul's service would have just been one more servant in his entourage and it really would have been a very entry-level, very low-level position in the kingdom. In 17 and 18, Saul agrees to this and, and one of the other attendants 
says, hey, I have a, a potential applicant for this new position in your kingdom. I know this guy, David. Now, we're not told who it was that recommended David. We're not told how he knows David. At some point, he ran into him in the field, in the market. Maybe they lived nearby. He knows David. And he knows quite a lot about David's reputation. And he says, David is an accomplished musician on the lyre. The lyre was a, a small stringed instrument you can see here. Some projections about in the ancient Israel what the shape would have looked like. But it was most likely a, a small kind of a mobile, like a little mini harp, six or eight strings. It's very possible that David as a shepherd would have carried this with him in his bag. That would have used it on those long dark nights in the wilderness to pass the time to soothe the sheep. David is an accomplished musician. He'll go on not only to play for Saul, but he'll go on to write hundreds of psalms of worship to God. So this man says, hey, I know a guy that can play the lyre. Not only that, he says, David is handsome. Not only that, David is an eloquent speaker. Not only that, the man says, David is a man of valor. He's courageous. He's an accomplished warrior. Now, what's interesting is that David is probably about 15 or so at this time. He's not yet in the army. And so when he says he's courageous and and a good warrior, he's either thinking about kind of retroactively skills that he'll acquire later in life, the author might be informing us, or this might simply be a comment on David's spirit, his skill with the slingshot, and how as a shepherd he would have been fighting off bears and lions, right? So this is not warfare against armies. This is warfare against, like, predators, David, you might say, is a, is a true renaissance man, right? Think about it. you got obedient son, handsome, he's got those piercing eyes, right? He's a hardworking shepherd. He's an accomplished musician on the lyre. He's an eloquent speaker. He will develop in, to become a creative poet, a valiant warrior, a savvy military general. I mean, this guy has got it all, right? You can't put David in a box. He's not just a king. He's not just a warrior. But most importantly... What's most important? What does the man say in verse 17? The Lord is with him. The Lord is with David. He's a man after God's own heart. And one day, this man after God's own heart, this multifaceted man who has natural skill, natural talent, hard worker, he will one day be the king of the nation. But, but that's a long ways away. He's got, he's got a long time before he's going to get there. So all these qualifications are given. David's recruited into the service. In verses 19 and 20, the messengers are sent to Jesse, David's father, and David arrives with gifts and he enters the king's service. And in verses 21 to 23, the chapter closes with what I believe is a summary statement. Now hang with me just for a moment. I'm going to try to do this quickly. But there's some confusion between chapters 16, 17, and 18 about exactly the order of what's happening, how it's happening, and how it is that David earned Saul's favor. Now we know that he began playing the lyre, he's comforting Saul, and David would eventually become a permanent part of Saul's inner circle. However, that does not happen right away. Verses 21 to 23, I believe, are a summary statement. Because if you look at, at chapter 17, verse 15, makes it clear that initially David served the king on an interim basis. And he would spend some time at home watching the shepherds and some time attending to Saul. And what's happening is the author is giving us two separate introductions. Chapter 16, he's introducing David as the one who would minister to the king. But in chapter 17, we get in many ways a parallel separate introduction about David, the courageous warrior who would stand up against a giant. 
two separate introductions. And this summary statement will tell us what will, where David will eventually end up. In verses 21 to 22, say that Saul loved David, that he would make him a permanent part of his inner circle. But if you skip ahead to chapter 18, verse 2, that's where David permanently leaves home, stops his shepherding, and moves in to the palace, or wherever Saul was living, to actually become not just an interim musical assistant, but he would then become, in chapter 18, the trusted military advisor and general. But between chapter 16 and 18, what has to happen? Saul or excuse me, David is going to have to slay a giant, right? And when he slays that giant, he'll move from interim musician to permanent advisor and general. But the very first step in David's beginning is him entering into service for the king. But as I said, it's, it's really service for God. It's the first step towards David's long road, a long, winding, difficult road toward becoming king. He's already been anointed, but he's not yet anywhere close to fulfilling his calling. And you ask yourself, okay, how can a 15-year-old, no-named, nobody shepherd replace Saul as king? Let, Let me tell you how I would do it, right? David would come in, and after about a week or two of him playing the lyre, everybody would realize this guy's humble, this guy's talented, he has a heart for God, he's trustworthy, right? Then David would defeat Goliath. And here's how I would do it. After David defeated Goliath, Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan's son, the would-be heir to the throne, would confer and would talk and say, you know what? God's not going to choose you, Jonathan. Let, let's just publicly anoint David, set him up. Let's pass on the throne, right? Like it would all happen in like a three-week period. And David would just be the new king. That's not how God does it. God takes David on a long, difficult, chaotic tradition or transition of power. And it's all guided by God's providence. He serves the king. He defeats Goliath. He eventually serves in the military. He eventually sees success in the military and becomes a general. We'll read how David's popularity grows to the point that the allegiance of the nation naturally begins to shift and people begin to look to David more so than Saul. Now keep in mind, David never once makes any attempt to overthrow Saul or take the crown. In fact, David throughout his life does everything he can to honor Saul. We'll read in chapter 20 how Saul eventually realizes that David's popularity is a threat to his son's succession. But as David's popularity grows, Saul's self-centeredness and arrogance and paranoia grow even more to the point that Saul begins to view David as a threat. He sets his mind to kill David. In chapter 24, Saul even admits David's going to be king one day, but Saul refuses to let go of his power. And so David will spend years on the run for his life as a wanted man. David will spend years hiding in the wilderness, living in caves, leading a band of outlaw misfits. He'll even at one point defect to the Philistines, and the whole time Saul is still king, and David is still looking and trying to honor Saul as king. David will not wear the crown until he is 30, 15 years after he met with Saul, with Samuel, in front of his brothers and received his anointing to be king. Another 15 years before the anointing of that day comes to realization. Can you imagine sitting there playing the same song over and over again for Saul so that his his crazy paranoia would dissipate and he'd calm down? 
Can you imagine David sitting there day after day thinking, really, Lord, is this it? Is this what you've called me to? Is this what you've anointed me for? Fifteen years David had to remain faithful. Fifteen years he would suffer and run and hide and wait for his calling to be fulfilled. All the while, I believe David, who has a heart for God, knows that he's not actually serving Saul, he's serving God. We can be frustrated. We get impatient after 15 minutes, right? We're like, okay, God, are you going to do what you said you were going to do? Many of us have been through, are in the midst of God's long, hard providence as David had to go through. Maybe you have a calling. Maybe you have a sense of purpose. Maybe you feel like, I've been anointed. I've been called to God's work. Young people, maybe you have a desire to be married. Women, maybe you have a desire to be a mother. Men, maybe you have a desire to lead a family. Maybe you have a sense of calling from God to begin a business that will make an impact, to be involved in politics, to to be a part of changing God's world. Maybe you have a heart, as we talked earlier this morning, maybe you have a heart to defend the unborn, to care for young mothers who are facing unplanned parenthood. Actually, you you don't even have to wait years for that. Just go sign up at the table in the lobby. You can begin that today. But maybe you have this this big vision, this big sense of calling from God, like David. Maybe you feel like you've started out in a humble place, in a meager place. Maybe you feel like you've already waited for years for God's purpose to be accomplished. And you think, Lord, when? When are you ever going to do what I have a heart for you to do? What I believe you've given me a heart for. I, I preached my first sermon in 1994. Matt, I think you've heard this. I was hoping Kevin would be here. Would you tell, tell Kevin? 1994, Young Life Senior Night, right? I, w- I was the loudest, most obnoxious guy in the group, and I showed up a lot. So they said, Tim, you give the sermon at Young Life Senior Night. Typical Young Life sermon is what? 15 minutes, 20 if you're really pushing it. After 40 minutes, my leader actually got up and stood and said, Tim, you have to sit down. That's enough, right? And I left there that night, and really that was the beginning of my calling. I walked away that night thinking... That is the most fulfilling, most amazing thing I've ever done. God, would it be possible that I could spend my life telling people about you and preaching the Word of God? I was about 18 years old, 1994. That summer, I went to work for my father pouring concrete. Actually, I I wasn't even pouring concrete because I didn't even have the skills to do that. Right? When you're digging footers, you you dig big footers for a a building, and you you put the... the, the, uh, the, the, uh, Gosh, the, you put the rebar, thank you, the rebar frame and structure into the hole, right? But before you pour, there's dirt that slips in the sides. So I was the guy they'd send down with like a paper coffee cup to climb down in there and scoop the dirt around the rebar so that when the inspector would come inspect it, it would pass inspection to the concrete. That's what I did that summer, right? Went to college at the University of Maryland. Praise God for that opportunity, right? Spent four years working for resident services, when kids would break their dresser, rip their blinds off the wall, poke a hole through their screen, we would go in, we'd replace screens, hang blinders, blinds, right? That wasn't my calling. It wasn't what I thought the Lord was going to do in and through me. It would, be, it would be another probably four years before anybody ever let me preach again. Not because they heard that terrible sermon I preached at Young Life. It just, I just didn't have the opportunity. It was about four years. It would be 13 years before, before I would be ordained before my church elders and sent out here to New Freedom to plant Living Hope Church. Some of you have been waiting many, many years, more than 13 years for your calling to be fulfilled. 
And you may wonder, God, is this it? Is this, is this it? Is this, is this all that you have for me? Think about David on God's long, winding, difficult road of providence. All the while, he's in the Lord's service. All the while, he has a heart for God. He's seeking to be faithful, whether he sat on the throne or not. He knew he had been anointed for the Lord's service, whether that was playing the same hymn over and over again for Saul, whether that was leading Saul's military, whether that was on the, the run for his life, hiding in a cave. And maybe you can identify with, like David, having natural skills. Maybe you can identify with David of having a hard work ethic. Maybe you, like David, feel patient, feel faithful, feel courageous. And those are good, wonderful things, but all of that pales into comparison to what truly enabled David to fulfill his calling. As we've said, he was a man after God's heart. A man who had been filled and anointed by the very Spirit of God. And so I say to you today, whether you feel like you've achieved all that you wanted or you're just starting out, as Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Whether you're at the beginning or the middle of the end of your long, hard journey, be faithful. Be faithful with whatever little, whatever medium, whatever big tasks and calling that God has given you. Whatever people you have influence on, whatever role and calling you have before you, be faithful. Stay in the Lord's service. Seek God. Seek God to transform your heart for God and never compromise as David didn't. Of course, he would stumble later once he was king. Honor those who are over you. David knew he was going to be the rightful king of Israel, but he would not overthrow Saul. He honored Saul. He kept his heart with the Lord. Friends, you have to trust God's providence. You say, but it's too long. It's too hard. I know. Trust God's providence. Be patient. And some of you who are on the, on the very end of life, who have just said, well, God never did what I thought he would. He, he never fulfilled that sense of calling I had when I was 25. Listen, you're never too old. 60, 70, 80, 85. You are never too old to fulfill God's calling. You're never too old to be the father God's called you to be. To be the the spiritual mother that God's called you to be. You're never too old to get involved in advocating for the life of the unborn. You're, You're never too far gone to fulfill your ministry in the church. So for those that are just starting out that feel like, is this it? Or for those that feel like you're all the way at the end and for everybody in between, trust the Lord's providence. Turn your heart to him. In the life of David, friends, we see a prototype of the Messiah. As the worship team comes up to close us out, we remember all the countless ways that David's story ultimately foreshadows the Messiah. Jesus also was anointed, but then had to wait years to fulfill his calling. Jesus also was overlooked by the world like David was. Jesus also was on the run from the sitting king, hunted and hiding. Jesus also was a man after God's own heart. Amen? Jesus was faithful. He was patient. He was courageous. This one who fulfills what David foreshadowed. The one we remember as the angel told Mary, he will be great. Our Savior Jesus will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His Father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. So let's stand together.
as we set our eyes on him. Father in heaven, we set our eyes on this great Savior, this greater David, this great King who who was anointed, who sits on the throne of our lives, who will one day sit on the throne over all the universe and even now reigns and rules through His providence. And we ask that as we turn our eyes on Jesus, that you would give us a heart like His. That again and again we remind ourselves that it is not it is not us but it is through Christ in us. So come take your throne in our lives. Form our hearts into your heart. Call us to trust you and to trust your providence through all of our days. Amen.